Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Dr. Sean Canone and today we're going to continue our series in reducing long-term care litigation risk. Specifically today we're going to look at the warfarin challenge in long-term care. As many of you know, warfarin is probably the most complicated medication to use in the elderly population. And when it comes to the use of warfarin or Coumadin in the long-term care post-acute care setting, it can be very risky for both the patient and the prescriber. And that's going to be our focus for today. As I've reviewed legal cases over the last 20 years, I can honestly say that there is no medication that shows up more in long-term care litigation than warfarin. And after 20 plus years of serving as a medical director in skilled nursing facilities, I can say that Without a doubt, warfarin is the most common cause of medication-related immediate jeopardy citations in the nursing home industry. I have seen citations related to warfarin use in the nursing homes that have decimated star ratings overnight and actually some that have led to some substantial fines and ultimately to litigation. It is good to know that there are alternatives to warfarin today like there never have been in the past, and these will be a topic for future conversations on our podcast, but for today, we're going to focus primarily in on the use of warfarin. Back in 2011, I was able to do a study in eight nursing homes looking at 600 patients and utilization trends for anticoagulants. It was 2011 when Xarelto came to the market. Pradaxa had been on the market for about a year, so this is very early on in our use of the DOAX, as they're now called, the direct oral anticoagulants. So the profiles here really represent a more traditional approach to anticoagulation. I think many of these trends have not changed a lot over the years, but I found it very interesting. We had an average age of about 78 years old. 13% of the patients in this 600-patient nursing home population had atrial fibrillation, but only 63% were being treated with an anticoagulant to reduce the risk of thromboembolic disease. The average number of INR draws over a period of 90 days was 15. That's an INR every six days. The number of INRs in therapeutic range was about 53%, so about half of the time. And with the INR draws, there were dose changes of the warfarin about 31% of the time. The mean serum hemoglobin level in this population was about 11, so slightly anemic on average, and and this was an important variable for us to look at because INRs are the most common lab draw that are done in a nursing home setting, and most of our patients have some degree of baseline anemia, and we just continue to suck more blood out of them. For the 37% of patients who had AFib who were not being treated with warfarin, the majority were on aspirin or some combination of aspirin and Plavix. So all this to say that we know that there is a lot of need for anticoagulant therapy in our population in long-term care post-acute care, and warfarin has been the mainstay of that therapy for more than 60 years. The history of warfarin is very interesting. Back in the early 1920s, there were cattle that were dying in the northern United States and southern Canada, spontaneously hemorrhaging. It wasn't until the 1930s, about 10 years later, that they started to identify that the cause was probably a sweet clover that was found in the feed for this cattle. In the early 1940s, this 
compound within the sweet clover coumarin was discovered. It was actually discovered by the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation Laboratory, or WARF for short, and because they had discovered this coumarin-based anticoagulant, they decided to call their new compound warfarin. In 1954, warfarin was approved for medical usage, but for many years before that, it was only used as rodent killer. And it was actually a very effective rodent killer because most rat poison up to that time would kill rats so quickly that they would be dead near the poison itself, and this would deter other rats from coming in and taking the poison. Whereas with warfarin, they could consume it, take it back to their nests, and then they would spontaneously hemorrhage and die. Over the years, warfarin has accumulated several indications, including the reduction in thromboembolic disease or stroke risk in patients with atrial fibrillation, the prevention and treatment of DVT and pulmonary embolism, reducing the clot formation associated with heart valve replacement, and even post-MI and CVA to reduce cardiovascular outcomes and mortality. Warfarin goes by the brand name of Coumadin, but there also are brand name generics, Jantavin, Merivin, and actually upwards of 15 different generic manufacturers of Warfarin, which can really wreak havoc on INR control depending on what pharmacy is supplying the Warfarin and whether their stock of Warfarin is coming from the same generic manufacturer from month to month. Warfarin inhibits vitamin K-dependent synthesis of clotting factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, as well as protein C and protein S. It's highly protein-bound, has a half-life of nearly a week, and a peak effect that occurs about 72 to 96 hours after consumption. Its duration of effect is about 2 to 5 days and is metabolized through the cytochrome P450 system. One thing you may not appreciate about warfarin is that it actually is a racemic mixture of two drugs, a right and a left-hand side. They call them R and S isomers. And they're very different. The S isomer of warfarin is actually two to five times more potent as an anticoagulant than the right-hand molecule. The left-hand molecule has a half-life of about 21 to 43 hours, whereas the right-hand has a half-life of 37 to 89 hours. They're metabolized differently, they have different drug interactions, and depending on the patient and the amount of S and R enantiomer within a particular mixture of a warfarin medication, it can have very different effects on the patient. The actual mechanism of action for warfarin was not known until 23 years after it came to market. In 1978, it was found that warfarin is a vitamin K epoxide reductase inhibitor, so it actually works outside of the coagulation cascade and globally shuts down the coagulation process. The INR, which we use to measure warfarin activity, did not come into being until the early 1980s. So as many, many years of measuring PTs and having each lab do that in their own way before it was standardized to a universal type of measurement, we know that the INR therapeutic range for patients with AFib or DVT or PE is somewhere between 2 and 3, whereas those with mechanical prosthetic heart valves, the goal is 2.5 to 3.5. Obviously, warfarin has been effective in reducing the risk of stroke, reducing DVT and PE and treating these things, or it would not have been used for the past 60 years, but it comes with a lot of potential baggage and downside, the greatest of which is probably drug-drug interactions. 
If you look at the American Medical Directors Association publication of the top 10 drug interactions in long-term care, this was done many years ago, but the top five all involve warfarin. It's warfarin and NSAIDs, warfarin and sulfa drugs, warfarin and macrolides, warfarin and quinolones, and warfarin and phenytoin. But I can say that warfarin has more than 220 drug interactions, and every year the number gets bigger because as new medications come to market, almost invariably they will have some sort of interaction with warfarin. And oftentimes we think of drug-drug interactions in terms of adding new medications to the regimen or escalating doses. And we also need to now use caution in the realm of gradual dose reduction. For instance, did you know that Zoloft or sertraline carries a warning in its package labeling about affecting INRs and warfarin activity? So whether you're starting Zoloft, escalating dose, Reducing dose or discontinuing the medication, you always have to be cautious of what is happening with the INR. There are also a tremendous number of food interactions with warfarin. We think of green leafy vegetables like kale or spinach, and those by far have the most vitamin K. But also remember that Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cabbage, avocados, tuna, blackberries, blueberries, peas, all of these foods and more contain some degree of vitamin K and can affect warfarin metabolism and its activity in the body. We've also talked in the past about the anticholinergic effects of warfarin. Don't forget those, that it can block any of the muscarinic receptors and can even lead to issues like cognitive impairment. It was shown back in 1992 to be one of the medications that Dr. Larry Toon discovered that could impair memory in a normal elderly adult at usual dose ranges. Finally, it's important to remember that warfarin can also lead to dermatological manifestations like alopecia totalis, warfarin necrosis, purple toe syndrome, as well as the more common bleeding disorders like GI bleeds, other areas of ecchymosis and purpura, and even osteoporosis. So with all that, it may be worth looking at alternatives to warfarin, and we'll talk about that in future episodes of the podcast for today, let's spend the remainder of our time talking about INR maintenance. We know that it's difficult to find real clear-cut guidelines of what to do when a patient's INR comes back, but let me give you some thoughts I've accumulated from different sources. These particular guidelines coming from a publication called CHEST in 2012. So for an INR with a target range of 2 to 3, like we might be using to treat patients who have atrial fibrillation or those with DVT or PE. Obviously, if they come in between 2 and 3, the recommendation is to not change the dose at all, and the follow-up INR is really at the provider's discretion. There's really not a clear-cut guideline for when you should recheck an INR in a stable patient. If an INR comes back and it's less than 1.5, the recommendation is to increase the daily dose by 10 to 20%. Some would say to give an extra dose that day as well. And the recheck for the INR should come somewhere between days 4 and 8. If the INR comes back between 1.5 and 1.9, the recommendation is generally to increase dose of warfarin by 5 to 10% per day and the repeat INR should come sometime between days 7 and 14. For an INR of 3.1 to 3.9, the recommendation is to decrease the dose by 5 to 10%, and then recheck the INR in 7 to 14 days. 
If the INR is between 4 and 4.4, the recommendation is to hold a dose for one day and then decrease daily dosage by 10%. Repeat the INR in 4 to 7 days. For any INR that's greater than or equal to 4.5, there are more specific recommendations as follows. First, if the INR is between 4.5 and 10, but there is no evidence of bleeding, the recommendation is to stop the warfarin, closely monitor INRs daily, monitor for signs and symptoms of bleeding, resume the warfarin at a lower dose when the INR is back in the desired range, and vitamin K administration is not generally recommended unless the patient has a high bleeding risk. For INRs that come back greater than 10, where there is still no evidence of active bleeding, the recommendations are similar to the previous. Hold the warfarin, monitor INRs daily, watch for signs and symptoms of bleeding, resume the warfarin at a lower dose when the INR is back in the desired range, but here the recommendation is to give vitamin K 2.5 mg orally. If the INR is not substantially reduced in 24 to 48 hours, consider additional doses of vitamin K. For any INR that's elevated, and for this particular example, that would be any INR over 3, the recommendation for those who have major bleeding is to discontinue the warfarin and administer 4-factor prothrombin complex concentrate. PCC goes by the brand name K-Centra and is a medication stocked at emergency departments for this particular use. Also in these patients, we should consider the addition of vitamin K 5 to 10 milligrams via slow IV infusion, and vitamin K injections can be repeated every 4 to 6 hours. Obviously, if a patient's having a major bleed and they're on an anticoagulant, it is best to have them in a controlled environment where they can be hemodynamically monitored and where these medications can be administered in a safe way. Well, hopefully today's episode is helpful to you in your practice and ultimately to the patients who you serve. Please be watching in the future for a PowerPoint program to be coming through that will provide additional education and will also introduce you to a tool that you might want to utilize to quantify risk versus benefit in patients who are on warfarin and consider a transition to one of the newer anticoagulation agents. This tool is called the WIN Profile. With that, thank you for joining the episode today and we look forward to talking to you next time.